0: What is going on, true crime fans, and happy Monday. I'm your host, Heath.
1: And I'm your other host, Daphne.
0: And you're listening to Going West.
1: Today, we've got a case for you guys that's basically two in one.
0: But before we get into the case, we want to give a couple shout outs.
1: Hello, and thank you to Fred from Ohio.
0: And a big thank you to Stacy in Tampa, Florida.
1: And Terry from California. Thank you so much for listening and reviewing. You guys are awesome.
0: And also a big thank you to our newest patrons over on Patreon, Emily and Emma. Thank you guys for subscribing. It means a lot to us and really helps out the show.
1: Yeah, if you guys want to subscribe to us on Patreon, you get bonus episodes.
0: Yeah, it's just $5 a month and you get two bonus episodes every month and they're ad free. This is episode 17 of Going West. Let's get into it.
1: Stephen Stainer disappeared on his way home from school in Merced, California. He was seven years old. Good morning, uh, Stephen and Mr. and Mrs. Stainer and Michael Hyder. Nice to have you all with us. Stephen, what happened that afternoon? Do you remember when you were walking home from school?
2: Uh, yes, um, I was walking home from school and I was stopped by a man along the street just a few blocks from my house and he uh, asked me if I wanted to me or my, my mother wanted to donate something to a church and I had told him that uh, my mother would probably want to and so he offered me a ride home. They passed the road that I was that I lived on and I had told them that that was the road I lived on. They said that we'll just uh, call your parents to see if you can stay the night. The first night they had said they called my parents and said it was all right that I stay the night. The second night, they said that they had called him again and said they, that I could stay another night. Then um, one of them went, to, uh, went out and came back and said that he went to court and got in possession of me and said that I was his. A
0: serial killer in a national park is a story. But there was more to this story, because you had a serial killer whose brother had been a national celebrity 20 years ago because he'd been kidnapped and held captive for seven years.
2: You never expect so much terror to happen in such a a beautiful place.
0: You have two brothers bonded by blood, but still one deep, lingering question. Did somehow those experiences of the younger brother
2: influence the maniacal behavior of the older brother?
1: Stephen Stainer was born on April 18, 1965, in Merced, California. He was the third of five children of parents Delbert and Kay Stainer. Stephen's eldest sibling was Carrie Stainer, who is four years his senior. On December 4, 1972, Stephen Stainer was walking home from school. He was just seven years old at the time and in second grade. When he was just a few blocks from his home, a car approached him. Two men were in the car, and they explained that they were collecting money for a church and asked if he wanted to make a contribution. Stephen explained that his mother would likely be willing to make a donation. The men in the car were Kenneth Parnell and Irvin Edward Murphy. Kenneth Parnell had described himself as an aspiring minister and asked Irvin Murphy, who was apparently very naive and simple-minded, to help him abduct a young boy so that Kenneth could raise him in a religious-type deal. So that day, they were looking for a boy to kidnap, not for church donations.
0: Kenneth asked Stephen where he lived so he could take him home and get the donation from his mom. Stephen explained that he could walk because he only lived a couple blocks away, but the men insisted. Stephen then jumped into the car and gave the men directions on where his house was. When Kenneth drove past his house, Stephen was incredibly confused. He mentioned that they had passed his home, but Kenneth kept driving. Eventually, they arrived to Kenneth Parnell's cabin, which was less than 30-minute drive away. Interestingly enough, Stephen's grandfather's house was only a few houses down, but they didn't have a relationship, so Stephen was unaware of this fact.
1: Stephen asked why they were at his house, and Kenneth explained that his parents said that he was allowed to stay the night. The first night, Kenneth Parnell molested Stephen, and 13 days later, he began raping him. Irvin Murphy was completely aware of the consistent sexual assault, but he did nothing. Over the first week, Stephen would continuously tell Kenneth that he wanted to go home and that he didn't understand why he was there. Just a few nights into the abduction, Kenneth told Stephen that he was his new legal guardian and to start calling him dad. He even said that his parents couldn't afford to care for him anymore and they didn't want him.
0: So this is how far Kenneth is willing to go in this abduction. He actually claims that he goes down to the courthouse and gets legal documents explaining that Stephen is now his son. It's just kind of crazy how far he's willing to go.
1: And it's sad because Stephen is only seven years old, so he doesn't know any better. He's not going to question this fact. You know, he's not going to be like, uh, what do you mean you're my new legal guardian? Like, he's just going to go with it.
0: Yeah, and at this time, I feel like Stephen is not going to question an adult because he thinks that he's an authority figure, so it's really unfortunate that this older man is willing to manipulate a little child into this situation. And this is kind of different from many hostage situations. Kenneth created a new identity for Stephen and even allowed him to have friends and go to school. His new name would become Dennis Gregory Parnell, and this name was used when he was enrolled in different schools. And they actually moved around quite frequently around California, but always staying in Northern California. Kenneth Parnell worked, so there were many days where he would be out all day, and he would sometimes even travel and leave Stephen at home by himself.
1: Because of this, a lot of people argue that Stephen should have left when he had the chance, but I mean, he was seven years old when he was abducted, and he explained later that he didn't know how to ask for help or how to flee, even though he technically could have on numerous occasions. Kenneth Parnell had even eventually told him that his father died and his mother moved away, so even if he did escape, he wouldn't know where to go.
0: And it's not like Kenneth is locking Steven up in a basement or chaining him in a closet or something like that. Stephen actually has a lot of freedom, but it's everything that's happening behind the scenes that is really so messed up in this situation. And another manipulating tool that Kenneth used was he actually bought Stephen a little terrier dog named Queenie. And Stephen actually claimed that the dog was actually one of the most positive things in his life. And Kenneth was a briber. He would bribe Stephen with toys and different things like that. It's hard for a seven-year-old to understand that something is really going wrong here. At a young age, Stephen began drinking and smoking cigarettes because Kenneth supplied him with them and encouraged him to pick up these habits. Stephen would sometimes bring friends over to the house and introduce Kenneth as his dad. While the boys were over, Kenneth even sexually assaulted some of them as well. By the time Stephen was nine years old, a woman named Barbara Mathias, I think that's how you pronounce her name, Mathias, moved into the house. According to Stephen, Kenneth Parnell and Barbara would rape him together on nine separate occasions over the course of 18 months. She later stated that she had no idea Stephen had been abducted. However, she had apparently attempted to help Kenneth Parnell lure a young boy into Parnell's car, but it was unsuccessful. And one thing I want to say about this Barbara bitch is that I'm sorry, but she's like, oh, well, I didn't know he was abducted. You're still allowing a nine-year-old boy into the bedroom to have sex with you and your boyfriend. You are a piece of shit.
1: Yeah. And what was her excuse? Oh, I thought it was his son. It's like, okay, so is that any better? You're raping your boyfriend's son?
0: It just is so strange to me that somehow Kenneth Parnell is able to convince people or manipulate people into these sexual situations with younger kids. Like, I don't know how he convinced Irvin to help him pick up a young boy. I don't know if he really needed to convince Barbara to allow Stephen in the bedroom with them, or if she had anything against doing that in the first place. I have no idea, but it just seems like he's this master manipulator.
1: As the years went by and Stephen started to grow into a teenager and go through puberty, Kenneth Parnell was no longer interested in him sexually, as if Stephen's getting too old for his type which is horrific around this time kenneth had told steven that he was interested in abducting another young boy he even tried to recruit steven to help him lure in boys but none of the attempts were successful now this made kenneth believe that steven wasn't very good at it but it's just because steven didn't want to abduct any children he didn't want anyone to go through what he did especially if he was there to witness it
0: And it's highly believed that the reason why they were unsuccessful is because Stephen would actually sabotage these missions for Parnell to pick up young kids. So on February 14th, 1980, Kenneth Parnell and a friend of Stephen's named Randall Sean Porman kidnapped a five-year-old boy named Timothy White. Timothy was very clearly upset to be away from his parents, and this really got to Stephen. At this time, Stephen was just shy of 15 years old, and he had finally decided that he was ready to break free of the horror he'd endured for the last seven years. On the night of March 1st, 1980, so just a couple weeks after Timothy had been abducted, Kenneth left for his overnight security job. He mentioned that he might be back in case he forgot something. Since Stephen had planned on escaping that night, this comment made him incredibly paranoid. What if he was trying to leave and Kenneth came back and found them?
1: Stephen waited a considerable amount of time after Kenneth left before he and Timothy fled. The boys hitchhiked and got a ride from a stranger, but since Timothy was only five years old, he had no idea where his house was. So they rode 40 miles and Stephen finally decided that Timothy should go into the police station without him and ask for help. When the boys got there, Timothy went inside and then immediately came out, which quickly raised flags for police, especially since it was the middle of the night.
0: When police came out and found the boys, Stephen explained that the boy with him was Timothy White and he was abducted two weeks earlier. The police originally asked Timothy if Stephen was the one who abducted him, but he said no, he wasn't. Police then asked who Stephen was and he said, I know my first name is Stephen. Then he explained his entire story to police and they realized that he was the Stainer boy who went missing seven years prior. Police explained that they would bring him home to his parents, and he was incredibly confused because he had been told that his dad was dead and that his mother had moved away.
1: By the next day, Kenneth Parnell was arrested on suspicion of abducting the two boys. When the police looked into Parnell's history, they found that he'd been convicted of sodomy in 1951. The following year in 1981... Kenneth Parnell was tried and convicted for kidnapping Stephen and Timothy in two separate trials. He was not charged for rape, however, just for the kidnapping, and he only received seven years, but actually ended up serving five. The reason he wasn't charged for sexual assault is because most of them had occurred outside of the Merced jurisdiction. The prosecutors didn't even try to convict Parnell of sexual assault and rape because they thought they were protecting Stephen because they didn't want him to be looked at as damaged goods.
0: And this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Not only is this child abductor only getting five years in prison for not only abducting one kid, but abducting two kids and then sexually assaulting both. But at the same time, they don't want to go after a conviction for sexual abuse because they claim that he would be damaged goods at that point. That's just so messed up.
1: It's really sad because obviously this man is a danger to society because he's still trying to lure young boys into his house. Even when he had a boy, Stephen, he still wanted more. So that just goes to show you how horrible this man is and that he should not be out amongst the rest of us it's so ridiculous
0: and if we didn't mention this before when steven would bring home his friends from school parnell would try and sexually assault those friends as well and actually there was a specific friend he had mentioned to steven that hey your dad like tried to make a pass at me or come on to me and steven felt like this was normal because he didn't know any different Barbara Mathias was never arrested and neither was Irvin Edward Murphy and Stephen even stated that Murphy was incredibly kind to him during his time there and he believed that Murphy was just as much of a victim as he was because he was also under the influence of Kenneth Parnell's manipulation.
1: Stephen had a lot of trouble adjusting to his new slash old life back at the Stainer house. He was used to drinking and smoking at Parnell's, but this is something that Stephen's parents didn't initially allow upon his return, which makes sense. I mean, he's 14 years old. Stephen was even made fun of by his peers for being molested, and his father wouldn't look at him the same after that, as if it was Stephen's fault that he got raped. Stephen's father also didn't allow Stephen to seek counseling because he said that he didn't need it. So Stephen remained incredibly messed up after seven years of captivity and began drinking more and more, and he was eventually kicked out of the family house.
0: In 1985, when Stephen was 17 years old, he married a girl named Jodi Edmondson, and they had two children together. Things were starting to look up as he got a job at a pizza shop and started working with child abduction groups and speaking to kids about child safety. At this time, Stephen didn't have much of a relationship with his family, not even his older brother, Carrie.
1: Carrie Stainer was the first child of the family and was born on August 12th, 1961. When he was just three years old, he was diagnosed with trichotillomania, which is obsessive hair pulling. He was subscribed medicine for this, but he basically just constantly had the urge to yank his hair out. Many people described Carrie as a loner, but also said that he seemed like a nice and normal guy. Others described him as perverted and creepy.
0: Carrie had a far-from-normal childhood. As we just explained, his younger brother Stephen was kidnapped when Carrie was just 11 years old. After that, naturally, everything revolved around Stephen's disappearance. Delbert, his father, became obsessed with finding Stephen over those seven years, and Carrie was pretty much neglected. The other siblings testified to this, explaining that the kids kind of kept out of their parents' way to avoid upsetting them. They just kept their heads down.
1: Girls often liked Carrie and would even mention going on dates with him, but he never did anything about it, which his friends teased him for. He would admire girls and say if they're nice looking and it'd be nice to get together with them, but he never acted. In his early teen years, he would spy on his sisters and cousins when they went to the bathroom, and during his sister's sleepovers with friends, he would sometimes expose himself to them.
0: Carrie loved to draw. He loved doodling, reading comics, listening to heavy metal, smoking weed, and even drawing caricatures of people that he knew. He was actually the cartoonist for his high school newspaper, where he drew comic strips of the lives of his fellow classmates. His peers often said that they thought he would become a famous cartoonist or graphic artist. Carey was even voted the most creative student in his graduating class.
1: Carey never thought much of his drawings at all. J.P. Miller, the screenwriter of an NBC series on Stephen Stainer, once asked Carey why he didn't submit his drawings to colleges, because he could probably land a scholarship. Carey said he didn't think they'd like his work, so he didn't even try. He really didn't think much of himself at all. Because of his neglected childhood, he just never thought he would do anything special. He explained that he was put on the back burner during childhood, especially when Stephen came back. Stephen was getting all this attention, constant gifts, and endless love, so Carrie was just kind of left to the side. The family even often forgot to set out a dinner plate for him. It's like he wasn't even there.
0: Carrie was also obsessed with Bigfoot and apparently talked about him all the time. He didn't have a doubt in his mind that Bigfoot existed and kept this obsession and belief for a lot of his life.
1: I was never really exposed to the Bigfoot belief until I moved to Oregon last year. And now I see it some places and my dad lives here and he kind of like jokes about Bigfoot and seeing Bigfoot and it's just interesting. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, yeah. Your dad calls him the Yette, <laughs> The Yette. <laughs> But no, what's really funny is that your dad's obsessed with Bigfoot, but so is my dad. Your
1: dad's actually obsessed with Bigfoot, but not in a weird way where you're like, okay, dude, you're delusional. It's just like, he's into Bigfoot.
0: His last birthday party theme was literally Bigfoot. It was Bigfoot themed. What? Yeah, no, it was. Straight up, there was like a cardboard cutout of Bigfoot at his birthday party. (laughs)
1: Love our dads. But no, I mean, if you're into Bigfoot, that's totally cool. I'm not saying I don't think the guy's real. It's very possible. I'd love to see him. I just I haven't seen him yet.
0: Yeah. From what Carrie was explaining in this story, he said that he had actually seen Bigfoot and that he had like walked with Bigfoot. So I don't you know, that's kind of like where you get to the point where you're like, all right, dude.
1: So, like we said, Kerry was really into art, but instead of heading to art school, Kerry abandoned his ambitions and began working for a window repair company in his hometown of Merced, California, in 1989. He lived in a house with his uncle Jerry Stainer, who was a truck dispatcher for a hay company that everyone called Uncle Jesse. This would be another devastating year for the family. Steven Stainer, who at this point was 24 years old and, like we said, married with two children, was killed. On September 20th, 1989, Steven Stainer was riding his new motorcycle without a helmet in the rain, and he skidded trying to avoid a car pulling out of a driveway and was fatally struck in the head. Although Carrie and Stephen weren't close, Carrie was incredibly upset by this news.
0: And I just feel really terrible for Steven because not only was he abducted when he was seven years old until he was 14, but things are starting to look up for him when he's 24. You know, he's married, he's got a job, he has two kids, and then he suffers this tragic, fatal motorcycle accident. So it's like he really didn't get to live any part of his life, essentially.
1: And so many kids are abducted and they don't have that kind of luck to get out eventually. And even though it took Stephen so many years to get out, he still got out and had the opportunity to live his life again. And not many kids get that opportunity once they're abducted. And then he dies so soon. So it's it's very sad. Then in 1990, Carrie's roommate slash uncle Jesse was found dead in his bedroom with a shotgun wound to his chest.
0: Carey was definitely considered a suspect, but after questioning him, they found he had an alibi. He was at work at the time of the shooting. Apparently, an unknown person had been lurking around their house shortly before Jesse was killed. But this was only according to Carey, so it's unknown if this was true or not. Regardless, this unknown lurker was never found, and Jesse's murder is still unsolved. But there are some pretty suspicious facts surrounding his death. When Carrie was 11 years old, it was reported that he was molested by his uncle Jesse. Jesse had even been convicted for child molestation prior to this, so it's unclear why Carrie lived with him if he was such a monster, but many people claim that Jesse Stainer was Carrie's first victim in an act of revenge.
1: And we'll get more into Carrie Stainer after this short break. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, Temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. Looking to save on delivery, DashPass is your door to $0 delivery fees and more on DoorDash. And right now, using code GOINGWEST24, you can get 50% off up to $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply.
0: Daphne and I use DoorDash constantly to order lunch or dinner or even groceries. And that's why we love using our DashPass. Because it's the most affordable way to get anything in your area delivered right to your door.
1: I mean, come on. DashPass pays for itself in two orders on average, making delivery even more worth it. And that's why we use it so often. And it also gives you special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for just $9.99 a month.
0: Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash.
1: Use code GOINGWEST24 to get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply.
2: Hey, true crime fans. If you love cold cases, come check out my new podcast, Frozen in Time. Every Tuesday, I, Jocelyn
1: Maxwell, release a new cold case episode. I try to get as detailed as possible while advocating for the victim, not the crime. I cover missing people, mysteries, and murders that haven't been solved. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify. Also, come on over and say hi at Twitter and
2: Instagram, at frozenintimepod. Check out my website, where I give a list of episodes and other cool links, at frozenintimepodcast.com. Or, if you have a cold case idea, email me at frozenintimepodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Contempt True Crime is an independent, narrative-based podcast that often discusses cases not well covered in the true crime podcasting community. In Season 1,
0: I'll take on lesser-known cases like Amy Bishop, professor-turned-mass-murderer,
2: Richard Mark Evidence, the serial killer who hid in plain sight, and the tragic murder of Margaret Anderson, a case that terrified the small community of Green Bay, Wisconsin.
0: If you're looking for something new, search for Beyond Contempt True Crime wherever you get podcasts. I'm Renee, and thanks for listening. and we're back.
1: The following year, when Kerry was 30 years old, he tried to kill himself via carbon monoxide poisoning, but he failed. After this, when he was still working for the window repair company, a coworker found Kerry in the yard at work, punching a piece of wood, which caused his hand to bleed pretty bad. He told his coworker that he was having a breakdown and was incredibly nervous, but didn't know why. He said all he wanted to do was get in his truck, drive into the office, kill everyone inside, and light the place on fire. After this, Carey's boss took him to a psychiatric center to speak to a therapist about what he was going through.
0: Carey never went back to his window repair job again. He actually told coworkers that he was hoping to move to Santa Cruz, California to pursue a career in cartooning. This never ended up happening. Instead, in 1997, he moved to El Portal, California, which is less than four miles from Yosemite National Park, where he began working as a handyman at Cedar Lodge. For those of you who don't know, Yosemite National Park is a vast area of mountain paths, stunning wilderness, redwood forests, and is a major scenic attraction in California. He even lived on property, renting a room above the Cedar Lodge restaurant and lounge. One of the waitresses at the restaurant explained that he was a very cool and well liked guy. She said he got along with the rest of the staff well and that they would all hang out together after work. During the winter months, Yosemite isn't a very popular spot. Most of the employees in the area are all off for the winter and don't return until spring. But Carrie Stainer stayed on duty during the chilly months so he could fix any issues that would arise throughout the property. On February 14, 1999, Carry was in his room at the Cedar Lodge when he saw a bright red Pontiac Grand Prix drive up. 15-year-old Julie Sund and 16-year-old Silvina Peloso and Julie's mother Carol got out of the car.
1: Silvina was an exchange student from Argentina, and the three were visiting from Eureka, California to see beautiful Yosemite. Carol Sund and her husband were both realtors and had taken in Sylvina a few weeks prior. She had planned to stay with them for three months, and the family had been amazing hosts, taking her around the Bay Area, to Disneyland, and now Yosemite. Mr. Sund couldn't go with them on the trip because he was preparing for a business trip. The three ladies had originally flown to San Francisco, rented the 1999 Pontiac, and drove to Stockton, California, where Julie was in a cheerleading contest at a university.
0: During their two days at Yosemite, they enjoyed ice skating in Yosemite Valley, visiting the Merced River, and exploring other gorgeous natural monuments. The night of February 15th, they dined at the Cedar Lodge restaurant, which was just below Carrie's home, before renting some movies from the lodge's front desk and returning to room 509. Around 11 p.m., Carrie Stainer walked up to their room, carrying a toolbox with duct tape, a gun, a knife, and rope locked inside. Carey knocked on the door of room 509 and introduced himself as the motel's handyman to Carol Sund. He explained to her that there was a leak in the room above them and he needed to go into the bathroom to check if the water was dripping. Carol Sund is very smart because she was immediately suspicious of this. She said that she didn't see a leak and then proceeded to close and lock the door. Carey kept up his act and said that he would just return with the manager to confirm that there was indeed a leak. Carol finally gave in and opened the door, agreeing to let him have a look. Carrie walked through the room and into the bathroom where he pretended to be fixing something. About two minutes later, he came out of the room with a gun in his hand.
1: He told Carol, Julie, and Selvina not to panic and that he just wanted to rob them because he really needed the money. He gagged and bound them all with duct tape before putting Selvina and Julie in the bathroom. Carol was left lying on the bed. When Carrie returned to her, he strangled her with a rope before taking her car keys and dragging her body to the trunk of her rental car. Carrie later explained that it took five minutes to strangle her and that he didn't realize how hard it was to strangle a person. He then returned to the room and tried to make the girls perform sexual acts on each other, but Sylvina kept crying and that made him mad. He grabbed Sylvina, put her in the bathtub, and strangled her.
0: Not only is this horrifying for Julie and Carol, but poor Salvina, you know, she's a foreign exchange student. Her trip to the United States is almost over and she ends up getting murdered. I can't imagine what her parents are thinking after they sent her on this foreign exchange trip and she's killed. It's just so incredibly sad and unfortunate for Salvina. So, after he killed Selvina, he then proceeded to sexually assault Julie in the empty room next door before tying her up while he cleaned up the crime scene to make it look like the girls left willingly and nothing happened. That's when he put Selvina in the trunk next to Carol. And again, Julie was in the room next door, so she was unaware that her friend and mom were dead. Like we said, that area was pretty deserted at the time due to it being winter, so it wasn't very hard to get a body into the trunk that late at night without someone seeing. Apparently, this all took hours because at 4am, Carrie Stainer carried Julie's son out to the car and put her in the front seat. At this point, Julie was still unaware that her friend and mom were dead. While they were driving, Carrie took the duct tape off of Julie's mouth and they started making small talk. He didn't know where he was driving, or what he was going to do with them, he just kept going. After about an hour of driving, and as the sun was starting to rise, Carey pulled off the road he'd been traveling down and drove into a deserted parking lot near the Don Pedro Reservoir Outlook. He picked Julie up, who was naked but wrapped in a blanket from the motel, and carried her to the overlook, and once they reached it, he sexually assaulted her again. He then told her that he loved her and cut her throat. He then brushed her hair and fanned it out on the dirt before hiding her body underneath the brush.
1: Carrie drove the car down a logging trail and abandoned it before walking two miles until he reached a telephone in Sierra Village where he called a cab. The cab driver explained the ride to reporters years later, saying it was a 90-mile trip back to Cedar Lodge, costing $125, which apparently Carrie stole from Carol's wallet. Carrie asked the taxi driver if she believed in Bigfoot, and when she said no, Carrie said, you should because he's real. A few nights later, Carrie returned to the spot and set the car on fire.
0: I don't know what the relevance of him mentioning Bigfoot is. I don't know if he's trying to claim that he's Bigfoot, but it's kind of strange that he keeps bringing this up.
1: I think he just likes talking about Bigfoot. Like, I think he just wants to see what everybody else thinks.
0: It's just so weird, though, because he literally just killed three women and now he's just like, oh, yeah, Bigfoot again.
1: No, but it's interesting because this was probably within like 20 or 30 minutes of killing Julie. And then he's just chilling in a cab talking about Bigfoot like it's no big thing.
0: I mean, it just seems like Carrie has completely lost it because not only did he tell Julie that he loved her before he killed her. But now, 20 minutes later, everything's fine, and he's chatting up Bigfoot with this taxi driver. I just don't understand it.
1: He's also, like, 40 years old, and Julie is 15, but we'll get more into his creepy pedophilia later.
0: Yeah, definitely. There's a lot more concerning Carrie and his creepiness in this story. The morning of February 16th, the Cedar Lodge staff cleaned room 509, completely unaware of what happened in there. Since there was no blood or major sign of struggle, and the keys were left on the desk in the room, the housekeepers had just assumed that they checked out. That evening, the three ladies were supposed to meet Carol's husband and Julie's dad, Jens, at the San Francisco airport that evening while he was on his way to Arizona for his business trip. The girls had actually planned on flying there with him so they could tour the Grand Canyon as well.
1: That night, the girls didn't arrive at the airport, and he hadn't heard from them. This was incredibly out of character for Carol because she was a planner and she was very organized. Regardless, Jens assumed that the girls had flown ahead to Arizona, but when he got to Phoenix, he couldn't find them there either. He stayed in Phoenix for another day, but his family still hadn't shown up or contacted him. That's when Jens called the police. He then found out that they hadn't returned their rental car to the airport.
0: Local police and Yosemite security began searching the area for the three girls. They initially believed they had gotten lost while hiking, but their extensive search efforts of the trails didn't lead to anything over the next four weeks. Since the car was missing, they had begun to assume that they had gotten into an accident and possibly driven off a ledge. Jens offered a $250,000 reward for any information that would lead to the return of his wife and daughter. He quickly bumped it up to 300,000, but didn't get any real leads. At this time, a march and vigil were held for Carol, Julie, and Sylvina.
1: About a month after their disappearance, on March 19th, a hiker came across the burned Pontiac and reported it to police. When police arrived, they found the burned bodies of Carol and Sylvina in the trunk, but still have no idea where Julie was. Just after this discovery... A note was sent to police. It included a hand-drawn map explaining where Julie's son's body was. At the top of the note, it said, We had fun with this one. Police immediately searched the area on the map and found Julie's body. It's interesting that Carrie is pretending to be more than one person.
0: Yeah, that's definitely interesting. And I think that this is because he wants to try and throw police off and make it seem like there was two perpetrators. But one really stupid thing that Carrie does is he actually carves into the hood of the Pontiac and says, We have Sarah, thinking that Sarah is Julie.
1: (laughs) He's such a dumbass.
0: I mean, what a fucking moron. Literally. Like, not only he professes his love for Julie, and then he's like, we have Sarah. Like, he he didn't even get the name right. Like, what is wrong with you, dude?
1: Well, what did police think when they saw that? Were they like, who's Sarah? Or what, what did they think? Do you know?
0: They may have assumed that it was just Julie. I know that the two bodies that were in the trunk, it actually took a little bit of time for investigators to realize that it was Carol and Salvina because they weren't, they had to do DNA tests, obviously, to figure that out.
1: Right. So obviously they were looking for that car, so I'm sure they assumed it was them. But then with the Sarah note and not having Julie, that was probably like really confusing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then on top of all this, he writes this note to investigators or this map, I should say, that's basically chicken scratch. And somehow investigators are able to figure this map out and find out where Julie actually is. The crazy part is that Carrie wasn't immediately a suspect. Police knew it was someone familiar with the area since the perpetrator had successfully stashed the bodies in a bright-colored vehicle out of the area without anyone seeing. Detectives first began by interviewing the employees at the Cedar Lodge to see if anyone had seen anything and to clear them all of being a suspect. When they interviewed Carey, they believed every word he said. He remained very calm and collected throughout his interview, and he didn't have a criminal record. Police were also aware that he was the brother of a famous abducted child, so they didn't think someone who had been through that would lead a murderous lifestyle.
1: Police questioned countless people and a number of good suspects, but none of them matched up. Many of their suspects were in prison for other charges, and in June of 1999, police said they believed that their killer was currently behind bars.
0: Even though they believed that the killer may have been behind bars, they got an interesting lead. It looked as if someone was trying to get into Carol's credit card because they kept calling the credit card number, which kept failing time and time again. When police tracked down this lead, it led them to two men in Modesto, California, who had found Carol's wallet and had rummaged through it, obviously finding her credit cards. When police went to go question these men, they brought them in and had talked to them about the credit card, and one of the men said, no, I had nothing to do with this and the other man confessed to these murders. And I don't know if this is just because of interrogation tactics or what happened there, but he literally confessed to murdering these women. After a short time, police realized that it couldn't have been this man because all the details were wrong, and they also found out that he was abusing drugs like methamphetamine. So they were able to rule these two men out.
1: That is really interesting that he confessed. I think it's really weird when people... Do that for something that they had nothing to do with.
0: Right. I mean, if you look at cases like Brennan Dassey in the Making a Murderer case, it's just like there are certain ways that interrogators can manipulate people to confess to things that they didn't do. And that may have been either the man was crazy because he was a meth head or he confessed because he was interrogated for hours on end.
1: Within three weeks of saying that they believed the killer was behind bars, they reopened the case. A fourth victim was found brutally murdered just a few miles from Cedar Lodge.
0: A few miles away from the Cedar Lodge was the Yosemite Institute, which is a non-profit organization that offers week-long environmental education programs for schools, families, and even teachers. Joie Armstrong, who we're going to call Joey because a lot of people called her Joey, and joie is actually a French word. I don't think a lot of people could really say her name, um, so people called her Joey, who was 26 years old and a naturalist, was definitely one of the most popular staff members. Everyone loved Joey. She was incredibly outgoing and bright, and she really enjoyed her job, where she got to teach kids about nature and natural history while taking them hiking through Yosemite's backcountry. She shared her knowledge on different insects, animals, and plants along with the park's history. Joey had a boyfriend, Michael, who also worked at the Yosemite Institute. They lived a very simple life and lived in a small cabin a few miles from work.
1: On July 21st, Joey Armstrong arrived to work at 8 a.m. to work a normal day. When her shift was over, she drove the five or so mile ride home to her empty cabin. Her boyfriend and their roommate were away at the time, which, interestingly enough, worried her. She had even told coworkers that she was afraid to stay there alone at night because of the Cedar Lodge murders. Just before dark, Joey was packing up her pickup truck for her trip to visit a friend in Sausalito, California, when a car drove down the dirt road towards her cabin and stopped. Carrie Stainer got out of the car and said hello to Joey.
0: At this point, of course, Joey had no idea that the man in front of her is the Yosemite Park killer. Carrie had apparently tried to make the conversation casual by asking her if she had seen Bigfoot, again with the Bigfoot, in the area and mentioning he once spotted him near her cabin. He quickly realized Joey was alone and he pointed a gun at her, forcing her into her cabin. He then gagged her with duct tape and bound her hands. He then ordered her outside and into the front seat of his car, as they drove down the road, Joey managed to open the car door and jump out. She ran into the brush along a creek in hopes of running toward a cabin where her friends lived, but Carrie quickly caught up to her and slit her throat until he decapitated her. He then dumped her body in a drainage ditch and put her severed head 40 feet away.
1: Carrie fled up the road, but didn't make it far until his car broke down, miraculously, so he flagged down a park ranger for a ride back to work. The ranger reported later that Carrie had been incredibly calm and normal. And think about this, this is directly after he decapitated a woman, like, oh.
0: Yeah, zero emotion.
1: The next morning, the friend Joey had planned to visit in Sausalito the night before had phoned police because they hadn't heard from Joey and she never showed up to her house. Police knew foul play had been involved because her car was all packed up and ready to go, but she was nowhere in sight. When they began searching for her body, they quickly found her mutilated remains.
0: Within two days of killing Joey, Carrie Stainer was in custody on suspicion of her murder, and the FBI were pretty confident that they had their man. When they searched Carrie's home at Cedar Lodge, they discovered evidence that they thought linked him to all the murders. The next day, Carey was interviewed by a reporter for a news station and, in a relieved tone, Carey said, I am guilty. I did murder Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso, and Joey Armstrong. None of the women were sexually abused in any way, which we now know is a lie. In an FBI interrogation, he then explained that he had fantasized about killing women for 30 years, and even went into detail about how he murdered the women. At the end he said, I am sorry their loved ones were where they were when they were. I wish I could have controlled myself and not done what I did. When police asked Carry why he did it, he said, I watched the Discovery Channel.
1: Yeah, Carry had murderous thoughts from an early age. When he was just seven years old, he had his first violent fantasy. When he was on a shopping trip with his mom, Kay, he pictured shooting at supermarket clerks and murdering people in the store all at once. So he did have a pretty messed up childhood, but it seems like he had these thoughts even when he was a little boy.
0: Yeah, like maybe they were just kind of built inside him even before the situation with Steven and everything else that happened. After this, Carrie Stainer was arrested for all of the murders. Carey pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His lawyers claimed that the Stainer family had a history of sexual abuse and mental illness. In return for his confession, he actually requested child pornography. In the end, he was found sane and convicted on four counts of first-degree murder by a jury in 2001. In 2002, he was sentenced to death, but he has still not met his fate. He remains on death row at San Quentin Penitentiary in California.
1: I'm just curious what he thought was going to happen asking for child porn. Like, did he actually think he was going to get that? That is so, so insane.
0: I'm sure that the prison official was like, I don't know what you're thinking, bud, but first of all, we don't have that. And second of all, you're not getting that.
1: Yeah, first of all, that's illegal and disgusting. You sick fuck. I read that everyone was so pissed by that request everyone was just like you are a monster
0: i just feel like this whole story is so it's just so much to take in you know with steven and then with carrie like i feel so bad for steven and i feel so bad for the family in general because they had to deal with all of this and it just sucks that steven was you know this hero that saved timothy white and then You know, he dies early and then Carrie goes on to murder a bunch of people. It's just so crazy to me.
1: Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West.
0: Yes, thank you so much for sticking around through this crazy ride. Make sure you check us out over on Instagram at Going West Podcast and over at Twitter at Going West Pod.
1: Let us know what you think about this episode. And if you want bonus episodes, if you just listen to this one and you need another one right away, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash Going West Podcast.
0: Next week, we'll have an all new case for you guys to check out. So stay tuned. They come out every Monday.
1: And if you want a shout out on the show, make sure to leave us a nice old review on Apple Podcasts and leave your name and location.
0: So for everybody out there in the world, keep it real and stay weird.
1: Cheerio.